Hello, Graham Walcott here and welcome to the new series of Beyond Busy. This is the show where we talk productivity, work-life balance and defining happiness and success. Welcome back. We've been away for a few weeks and we've got a great first episode to get you back into things. This is Jessica Foster Q, stand-up comedian, actor, writer, and uh, just an all-round good human being, really candid interesting conversation with Jessica on just a wide range of topics. We talk about her new show. We talk about behind the scenes of taking a show to the Edinburgh Festival and all the stuff that's involved. We talk about TV and dealing with disappointments and rejections and politics and talk about taking personal risks and dealing with successful friends and all kinds of really interesting stuff, a bit of uh, feminism and social justice uh, thrown in at the end as well. So really, really interesting conversation, uh, very candid, very open, um, really enjoyed talking to Jessica. So um, I think you're going to really love this one. Um, before we get into it, just a couple of quick little announcements for me, little notices. So firstly, to say that I'm doing another masterclass event in London on the 28th of June. So we'll put the link to this in the show notes, which will be at getbeyondbusy.com. You can also find it really briefly by just going to the Eventbrite website and just putting my name in, uh, Graham Walcott Productivity Masterclass. That will come up on there. Uh, it's a full day thing. It's the 28th of June. Um, you'll find some tickets on there. It's a, They're deliberately low key, these things. So um, there's a maximum of 24 places on it. And the reason for that is that I, I want to spend a lot of time with each person individually. So if that sounds like something that you're into, if you want a bit of a kickstart or a bit of a kick up the backside for your productivity, uh, we'll cover all the stuff that's in how to be a productivity ninja over the course of a day, but with a real emphasis on the practical and kind of getting you getting you set, getting your systems going, uh, getting your second brain in place so that you can no longer need to remember everything in your actual brain and all that kind of stuff, how to deal with mobile phone addiction. Um, it's all there. So um, yeah, 28th of June in London, come along. And if you're not in London, but you want to go to another Think Productive public workshop, just go to thinkproductive.co.uk. Uh, thinkproductive.com you'll be able to find your place around the world if you're not in the UK as well and we'd love to see you um, the other announcement I wanted to just make is um, thanks to all of you who've bought the work for your book so far and thanks to all of you who've been uh, sending me the little messages of man this is changing my life this is having a big effect um, I honestly I I knew we were onto something but I've just been blown away by the response to it and just how people are reacting to this stuff, how people are uh, putting in place uh, new ways of thinking about eating, new ways of thinking about energy. And it just, it seems to be going really well. So um, thanks if you've already bought it. If you haven't, check out the Work Fuel book. Um, again, we'll put a link to the show notes um, in the show notes at getbeyondbusy.com uh, to the Work Fuel book and you can go and find out more there. So let's get into the show. And this is a podcast double bill for me. So um, I interviewed Jessica for Beyond Busy and she also interviewed me for her podcast, which is called Hoovering, all about food. So talking a lot about work fuel in Jessica's one and then talking a lot about work-life balance and all those aforementioned topics in this one. So we are at Platform 9 in Brighton, really sunny day and... Um, Jessica's here in Brighton to do the previews of our new show, which is where we start the conversation. So let's get into it. This is my conversation with Jessica Fosterkew. 
So I'm here with Jessica Fosterkew. How are you? Hey, I'm good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and we've just done your podcast, haven't yeah. we? We've just done Hoovering and we're sitting in Platform 9 overlooking the sea in Brighton so on a lovely. really beautiful day. Um, and I came to see your show last night, Thanks. which is really great. Um, so you're doing previews at the moment mm-hmm. for a show called Hench, um, which is going to be on at the Edinburgh Fringe. Yeah. Maybe we should start by... For those people who are uninitiated in what is the Edinburgh Fringe and what it's all what it's all about, yeah. can you just like describe that cycle of of prepping a show and getting it ready for Edinburgh and what Edinburgh means? Should sure. Start with that? So, um, so for stand ups, um, it kind of used to be like mecca really it would be like where you go to worship and um and it used to be it's called a fringe festival and it used to very much be um for people to go and work up stuff and get it good and over the years that i've been doing stand-up which is nearly 11 years it's really changed even in that time to something which is much more brutal and a trade fair ultimately Mm. um massively oversaturated there's um, there's lots of different ways of doing the fringe that you can go on the free fringe which is where you don't pay for your venue and um, people don't pay to come and see you um, and then you can do there's like some independent venues where you can charge as little as five or six quid for a ticket and um, and then fill the room up with people on a pay what you want basis so it's free basically but they're encouraged to pay something on the way out and then you can do the there's a big four venues and where you're charging at least a tenner for a ticket and your outlay just for the venue is several thousands of pounds yeah and now you are encouraged um the, the free fringe ultimately is great if you don't care if you get noticed at all and that's not most people's situation or if you're already so famous that you can go up as someone uh who for your integrity or your politics wants to make your show free mm. and chaotic yeah. you won't be able to have an organised thing um, and then most people who do want to be noticed are in the middle or this very expensive realm and then you're looking at um, a preparing so you have so many things to prepare for in the sense that you preparing your show ultimately I mean I think it's easy to forget that that should be your primary aim to yeah. just prepare the best possible stand-up show that you can do or that you want to do. Um, and, oh, God, have I been on a journey over the years in terms of how I approach that. Um, but also you need to prepare um, from... Uh, so it's August every year. It's the whole month, um, arguably a bit long. <laughs> someone to be performing an, an enormous amount of times every day. Um because uh, everyone's knackered and screwed by the end, right? Yeah, like, but also you're riding on this exhausted. adrenaline up there. Yeah, people lose their voices. But also there are ways of doing it without doing that. I mean, the first few years, the performance bars are open till five or six in the morning. Yeah. And because everybody's running on adrenaline, they don't get hangovers like normal. And people just live, they just burn, they just crash and burn. And if you can withstand the month like that, which so many people do... Um, you get horribly ill in September. Right. <laughs> I mean, your body just yeah, yeah. can't do that. Um, I mean, maybe there's people who are like 21-year-olds getting away with it still. Yeah. But I'm 35 and I can't anymore. Um, what do comedians generally do in September? Is it a month where most people don't do loads of gigs? And mm. is there a bit of a kind of recovery period in the calendar of stand-ups? No, not no. really necessarily. Yeah. Very weirdly, that's the start of January because people mm. don't want to come out and watch yeah. comedy then. Yeah. And oddly, if you're at a point where you're getting radio and television work, 
um, in terms of comedians, stuff that comedians do, like panel things and stuff like that, there's a big wave of it in the autumn. Yeah. Also, yeah. it's a prime time to tour. Uh, either the spring or the autumn are the best times to tour a show. Um, so it's complicated. I don't know where the let-up is. The let-up you sort of have to wait for January for. But yeah. I mean, and I certainly don't let I don't plan to do anything for at least a week and a half when mm. I get back yeah. and there are other people who work differently I've uh, got a friend who I met a lovely American comedian uh, called Annie Sertich last time I, I did the full run of the fringe and then um, she messaged three comedians afterwards who she'd made friends with me included just on Twitter and said how do I beat this post fringe blues and um one of them didn't reply she was probably too busy with the blues. <laughs> I replied with lots of pictures of different delicious foods, <laughs> mainly carbs. And another very successful comedian replied and said, start writing again now. Uh, and I thought, my God, I'm not wow. sure how healthy yeah. either of us have been, actually, yeah. in our advice. Take a break, but don't just have potatoes. <laughs> um, she, I hope she ignored us both. So, yeah, writing and potatoes would be, that would be the worst yeah. of all possible world. Um, <laughs> well, you know what I mean. So, Just some kind of indulgence yeah. or, 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 or never, never seeing a break in, in the yeah. relentlessness of it. And you've got, you've just got to. I so, take a break now. I take a break just before I go and just after I go. Yeah. Nice. So that's you kind of making sure you're in tip-top shape for... Edinburgh and yeah. then making sure you can recover from it afterwards as well. Also, I know that with the pattern of the show where you um, uh, you can... How I feel like it should go is that you have your first few days are very bit frightening. You're not sure you know the show. It's an exercise in really in learning it. Mm. And also there's stuff that you will have thought definitely was perfect stand-up that you get up there and in situ, there'll be something wrong with it. You don't necessarily yeah. need ditching or some bit I've had last time I did a show, there was a bit that I loved and I got up there. I was like, it feels totally written. It's totally overwritten. It's implausible, even though the thing did happen and it just took some tweaks and changes. So you've got to have your, you're still busy with the, um, you're still so overwhelmed with things to do in that first week. Yeah. And then you get this lovely patch um, from around a week in for around a week where you know the show, but it's all still fresh and frightening and exciting. And then the next two weeks, at some point during that two weeks, whoever you are, much like comedians that go on huge long tours, you're so familiar with the subject matter. You're doing it every day. You're often doing your show every day and then doing little samples of it yeah. and other things. Yeah. It starts to feel stale and you have to find tricks for keeping it spicy, either throwing in new bits or you keep editing all the way through it or you know, you or you do something else with your day that means that that hour is frightening again or exciting again. Right. But but I know that if I run up to the fringe in the week before doing preview, 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 I'll hit that point of almost boredom with the show earlier. <laughs> so I like going in after a week off, properly off. Right. One, because I'm just a nicer person and a better parent and a better comedian and a better everything if I've had a holiday. Um, and two, because I, I quite like feeling a bit scared about if I'll remember the show because I think it adds something. It adds okay. your life to it. So is that, knowing that that's sort of part of the process for you, it, yeah. having that scary bit, does that mean it's easy for you to sw switch off during that week? Because otherwise, that week is just before the biggest thing you're going to do in the year, yeah. pretty much. And it must be really tempting to 
you're on holiday, but in the evenings, oh, I'm just going to quickly do a bit. Like, are, yeah. are, are you genuinely switching off in that week? Yes. Yeah. Wow. That. <laughs> but also, I think another thing I've done over the years is not to treat it like the biggest thing I'm ever going to do. Okay. Because yeah. I think that can, I, for me, it's crushing. If yeah. you go up there, my first yeah. hour, I had a little bit of, I don't know how sweary your podcast it's about a you bit can be, you can be little sweary bit of, a little bit of smoke blown up my ass, and it all felt a bit mm. exciting and I had a PR person for the first time a producer for the first time little did I know you know there's always going to be people willing to take thousands of your pounds to right. help you yeah. in one way or yeah. another up there or not yeah. um, and, and then it all just came to not nothing but you know a good to middling mm. fringe probably um a lot of three, three and four star reviews and very solid and looking forward to seeing what she does next year. But, you know, my life didn't really change. Yeah. And you had a big and bill at yeah, the end of it. a huge bill at the yeah. end of it. Yeah, those first two years, which are the only two years I've ever done on the big paid for. Um, and I can't say I'll never go there again, but I I want to stay in the independent middle ground nice. for a million yeah. reasons. Um, um, ideally, philosophically, I just... And I suppose economically, I think the fringe would be amazing if every show was a fiver. Mm, it yeah. would mean that the very famous people sold out in a flash, um, which they do anyway, but it would mean and twice as many people would be able to afford to see those very yeah. famous people. And it would mean people could afford to see more shows. And uh, if you sold out in a flash, there's no, you know, there's no stopping you putting on extra shows. Um and so many more people would be able to afford to do the fringe. And the people who aren't doing anything really helpful in the fringe, who aren't in it, who aren't good at admin or creativity or promotion, but are still there anyway, making lots of money, would make a bit less money. <laughs> um, Just know about things. Stuart Lee did a big article a few years ago, didn't he, about yeah. the fringe? And one of the things he was saying, well, everyone's moaning about ticket prices being really expensive. And then everyone's moaning about rents being really expensive for everybody yeah. to stay there. And then no one's putting the two and two together that actually there's this big money machine that's. Yeah. pushing up the rents and but also people need to earn more money because the tickets are yeah. more and all this kind of stuff you know so it's yeah like, we were making it will burst yeah. yeah or maybe it won't everybody always says that about london yeah i mean prices. maybe it won't i don't know but maybe yeah if it could stagnate i mean i i i've got a kid and so i don't want to be without him for a whole month and so i need to rent a flat for a month up right. now for yeah. two rooms yeah. and um it's 700 pounds more expensive than it wow. was two years ago wow I mean that's not a, the ratio of inflation or exactly, yeah, rental yeah, property yeah. And, but I mean what can you do that there's this so there's this pressure on comedians that they have to go and that they and that you're not really taking your career seriously if you don't go and I realised about probably five years ago that that's not true and we've made mm. this fallacy for ourselves and I was finding that um, the better the better work I was getting the stuff I love doing um, really interesting writing work and acting stuff was none of it was coming from Edinburgh's yeah. and to be fair I'd never had an absolute belter where you know I was the talk of the town but even then people can have four of those on the bounce and their career doesn't change mm. and it'll be the fifth one that tips it or it doesn't and they take a year off yeah. and in that year off yeah. it all happens yeah. so actually we've we've made at Edinburgh this thing in our minds and it's not and once you realise it's not I think exactly the same way about auditions if you go into an audition and they can see hunger's the wrong word but desperation they can see how much you want that mm. and how much it means to you you're not going to get it yeah you have to at least learn to fake the idea that it's not that important 
it's like an attraction thing, isn't it? Like yeah. they need to want you more than they think you want them. Maybe, like yeah, moment, yeah, yeah. God, I've been yeah. out of dating world for so long. <laughs> I don't know. Oh God. So yeah. I've been thrown back into it in the but last is, couple of years. <laughs> oh God, yeah. It is that kind of um yeah, it's confidence, isn't it? The veneer yeah, of confidence. Yeah. And part of confidence is not caring too much. You don't want to seem like you don't give a shit. And, you know, obviously I put a massive amount of effort into Edinburgh, but also I'm quite keen not to go every year. Mm. Um, Did you, were you there the year, I was there the year that Tim Vine took out the big billboard. Do you remember this? Yeah. So there's a big billboard and it's just got Tim Vine sort of standing really sort of boldly. Huge. Huge. It would have cost about two grand. That. I, think, I think I heard a thing where it, he spent three grand on it. Yeah. Um, and massive letters just saying, Tim Vine. And then in small letters at the bottom, is not appearing at the Edinburgh Festival. Yeah. I just thought it's that the was biggest, really brilliant. It's the biggest, funniest <laughs> middle finger up to what it's become, which is a big marketing thing. Yeah. You know, you spend thousands on someone taking pictures of you spend thousands or someone to put posters up of it of that picture and then someone else some money to design the poster someone else to direct your show spending thousands on a flat for the month um and then uh, someone to do some pr for you and someone to help produce the show yeah and you have to so part of the prep for the fringe is arranging all of that getting that all arranged i was back and forth with my photographer for this year this morning it's like and, and are you doing that you or is, do you deadlines. have like an agent or a manager or someone who pulls a lot I of that have an admin agent together? Who, this, I have the best agent I've ever had and I only yeah. moved to her um, in February and she she definitely did a huge amount of work that a producer would normally do right. in terms of helping okay. me secure a venue at the yeah. time that I wanted. Um, but yeah, normally you'd pay a producer to do that, but they've got limited powers in mm. that. I'm paying a producer much less this year. Um, so that they can just come into their own once they're up there uh, and their job up there in terms of stand-up will be to communicate with your PR person so if you do, I don't like I don't, I'm not interested in reading reviews up there mm. or googling myself or anything like that and that's their job really and it's their yeah, job to right. handle your flyers and oh, your, right, all okay. your sort of stapling review, reading right. reviews stapling bits of reviews to flyers all of the sort of the stuff that actually if you're trying to do a great show every day if you get too involved in that as well yeah for me knocks you knocks you as a creative person even if it's a great review i'll find something in it on the wrong day to make yeah, me upset course, to not yeah. be my best yeah. as a stand-up that day um and even with all of that it's there's a it's kind of sense for me that you're like a sort of one person cottage industry yeah. a bit like you can bring in all, all these other people to do specific jobs and you've mm -hmm. got to even if you've got other people that you're delegating those things to you've really got to be kind of on the ball with all that like it yeah, just you're feels employing like um, lots yeah. of people you're a business and you're employing lots of contractors yeah um and so you're in that process now because the show you're doing now is a preview that you'll end up taking to i'm taking it to edinburgh, edinburgh right? so i'm now previewing it and um and we were talking just before actually but i have to preview very hard in may because i'm in a play from june mm. um and then i only have a f three weeks of july so i will do a few more previews then but i want my week off yeah before i go and then i'll do it for the whole of august at the edinburgh fringe and then there, I might do one or two just to keep it in my head in the autumn, but I'll tour it in the new year. Okay, cool. Yeah. And so the show's called Hench. Do you want to yeah. just say a little bit about the main themes of it? And Yeah, so it's called Hench, um, which, and it's all about strength. And, uh, yeah, roughly it's all about strength and rage and what femininity could might possibly mean. That's a lovely summary. And uh, also like dangles the carrots for people to want yeah. to go into it. And I, I went to see it and it's, uh, so you texted me last night when we, I was saying, I'm, I'm going to make it back. I'm yeah. definitely coming. 
And I said, oh, I'm, I'll see you there. And then you sent me back a message that was like, it's very much a work in progress. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, and so, I just was like, I just can't help myself but go, don't judge me. Yeah, don't, <laughs> don't judge me until it's on tour or it's halfway through the fringe, maybe. And my yeah. view of it from last night was it feels like it's pretty much a done show right now. Oh, Christ. Um, well, that's very kind. Felt, felt really good. But so do you feel like that about it? Or, and were you just being sort of overly cautious to yourself by sending me that text or yeah, I mean, do you genuinely that, feel that like that text this? to you was entirely yeah. for me <laughs> to make me relax about if I had a stinker and then I knew we'd, we were meeting today um, that was a selfish act of uh, self-coverage um, but no I know the shows I didn't do an hour last year I directed some shows instead so I know the lot of the material in the show is good to go Yeah, but and, and I think if you were to see it in August that Probably from an audience, from one audience member's point of view, who sees it twice, who sees it now and sees it, say, mid fringe, won't necessarily see tons of difference because mm. also that's a friendly audience. And when an audience know they're seeing a work in progress, they're kinder. Yeah. Um, but there will be, there are, there are things, that, screws that need tightening so much and there are still some that need throwing away. I know the stuff I've written only in the last week. I know the stuff that where it feels too much like I'm just saying a thing and there's no innovation or twist. Mm. Um, I have sort of have standards for myself bit by bit and I don't want there to be one bit, which even, I don't mind if there's a bit that I know isn't for laughs and I don't mind if there's a bit that I know won't work every time but I there's a reason why I'm saying it or I love it so much that I'm saying it anyway but I don't want I want it to be at a point where I'm so proud of every I don't like overwriting things so I won't say every single word but every bit every bit needs to be really good cool and I've got work to do on that front (laughs) especially on uh, getting the rhythms of the end right if I, I've got a quite big silly end I'm trying at the moment and I I need to work get my head around that and that feels like quite a massive task yeah okay but it might just be one preview and it all just comes together or one meeting with my director and it's like oh yeah we'll do that cool um, I first saw you when, on the, when you did the previous show right um, Silence of the Nans Silence of the Nans which we'll talk about a bit in a minute um, and I saw you preview that in Brighton right. and then I also saw that show at Edinburgh Festival as well that was the one where our friend Jess that we were talking oh, about yeah. before uh, like she got recommended it um, by someone else that uh, we both know and so um, and I and they were like we're getting tickets this I was like oh I've seen that it's really good I'll come again so I saw that show twice um, oh but, thanks but it felt like the last time when I saw the Brighton one it felt like the room wasn't full and it sort of felt like you were sort of on a sort of upward trajectory thing mm-hmm. and then the one last night it was like not only was the room full but it was full 15 minutes before the thing started yeah and then people coming in and couldn't get seats and yeah. you know people were squeezing in at the end and stuff and it also felt like of those people in the room, there was a lot more people there who just know of you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so is that, so you've been on Guilty Feminists and that's a huge thing. You yeah. did a, had a really big successful show last year. So do you feel like there's a buzz like building around you? Like, do you sense that you're getting a different and bigger reaction? I don't know that I should, anyone should ever be allowed to judge their own buzz about themselves. <laughs> but um, it's definitely been my best year yeah. so far, yeah. And it's new to me to have people coming out to things. Yeah. It's really new. And also, 
it feels amazing. It feels cheeky because I've done it through a back door, through mm-hmm. podcasts, I think, and um, live work. Yeah. Um, which is, uh, it's either very old school or very new school, but like normally the route, the route used to be when I first started comedy, you still, you get to the point where you're headlining weekend clubs and then you get on radio and telly. And then Edinburgh, the sort of things that would win awards in Edinburgh changed so dramatically that um, it meant that you could you could have incredible Edinburghs but never have done one club gig or be mm, bookable for a club yeah, gig. Yeah. And actually it meant lots of people who've been working for decades in club comedy um, were getting to headline a point. And actually if you would get to the point where you're headlining those gigs, you were never going to be taken seriously in Edinburgh because you're too clubby. Uh, like the right, world's yeah, got too yeah, different. And I'm yeah. still straddling these worlds. Yeah. Um, but the way to break was to get on a panel show or do some stand-up on telly or on the radio, get on maybe news quiz or something like that, and then ding, 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 that, that more things start coming. Yeah. Um, and over the time I've been doing stand-up, I've been grateful that I started when I did, but it's become a more and more popular thing as a sort of career choice from so young, from 16, you know, people mm. start, I think Josie Long started when she was 16. You just, that's all you ever do. And you have this vision of how you'll do it. And actually it became quite obvious quite quickly. I wasn't going to be someone who got shot very quickly onto being allowed on telly or on radio really, but definitely not on telly. Um, and I think there's other factors that come into play there as well in terms of appearance and stuff like that. But ultimately, um, I feel really nice to have found the back door of um, podcasts, my my own podcast, I think, and um, and small acting parts, but in really good things. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, it's been the most amazing year I've had work-wise ever. Nice. I've, I, and the... I think as well it's come down to, um, especially for a podcast about productivity, but I made a call when my kid was turned one. I, I've always found that I have a bit of a wobble around landmark birthdays of my own, but I didn't see it coming because it wasn't my birthday. I had a big wobble around him turning one. Mm. And um, I was like, why am I doing this? You know, it's not even my landmark. But I think I had just sort of worked so hard that year, but so ineffectually. Um, in his first year of life. I took him everywhere with me. I was working in all of these clubs, these weekend clubs, to massive groups of people out on parties and do's. And it's not, you can't really do, up to a point, you can, what's the word, cut your teeth in those places when you're new, because you should do every type of gig when you're new, just to see it and feel it. Um, And I... It got to the point where it's like, if I, I don't want to be good in these rooms, I'm glad these people are ignoring me because the sort of stuff that they will pay attention to, it's not the road I want to go down. Yeah. So why am I doing it? I'm doing it for money. Is this what I want to do when I'm 40, let alone 50? No. Then stop, you know. I did the same thing after a year into my degree. I did law at uni and I work, I stayed up till one in the morning working. I get up at 6am and start working again. And I was scraping two twos mm. because I wasn't working effectively. Yeah. Um, and I, I just had the same sort of slap around the face. I feel like I kind of need one a decade. And I was like, well, do what it is you want to do. Don't have to do everything overnight, but wind this down. You don't want to be doing this. And actually, it's taken that long that now, um, and from about a month ago, uh, is when people would be booking comedians from September to December, and I'm not really putting anything in. Mm. And it's the first time I'm not putting anything in because I've played it so safe for a while that I would put them in. But now I have to, I've had to take them all out. And I spend so much time on admin taking, apologising to people that I'm having to cancel something because 
some something great for my podcast or a tour date or um, an acting job more often these days or a Radio 4 thing or whatever has come up. It's lovely feeling, but also I don't like letting the person down. Yeah. It's just more work, the admin of cancelling the yeah. thing for the better of the <laughs> thing. So it, but it's taken a huge leap of faith in myself and my career. And it's the first time I felt really confident to go, well, I'm not going to put them in. So when you talk about the stand-up ones there, so is that particularly, you don't want to be doing the clubs, you don't want to be doing the uh, the ones that don't feel great, but you want to be doing more of the ones where it's like, you know, you're doing a tour show and you're yeah. kind of taking your Work show Work in out. progress and then a yeah. show that you've written. Yeah. And new material gigs are so lovely, as are, I never know, not going to be like, I don't want to do charity gigs and, you know, tour support gigs, your own tour gigs, they're all lovely, but the gigs that you go out and do where they run on a, Friday or Saturday or still occasionally in uh, in some places, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Um, I mean, some of them are amazing still, and I'd always like to do it once or twice a year, but not not out every weekend. Yeah, uh, and right. those gigs, the money for those gigs has stayed the same since the 90s. <laughs> so obviously it's worth a lot less now. For most of those gigs, the money's gone down. Mm, right. um, and it's just... You know, it's not, it's a particular style of comedy that's required from you at yeah, that gig. Yeah, yeah. There's some variation within the comedy as well at those gigs. And there's some clubs that try really hard not to let it get too uh, testosterone basically, mm. by not allowing big groups or not letting really drunk people in. Um, and, and, and there's Sunday night gigs, like the Comedia here in Brighton, the Sunday night gigs. Yeah. They don't yeah. count. They're lush. They're <laughs> normally like students or more alternative comedy. Yeah a kinder, more creative space. Nice. But yeah, it's taken me this long in it to go, well, this is what I do like doing, this is what I don't like doing, and this is how to make the change, and it will take this many years. Um, but it's worked. And also I think a big part of it is going, well, I don't want to do that. You set your stall out, this is my worth. Um, I'm going to say no if that's okay. And you'll get some people furious, but ultimately it does better, it does better for you in the long term. Yeah. And then you'll go, well, they're doing that now, and they're doing that now, so... We'll book them for more of this, these things that they love. Nice. Um, I suppose there's always within that uh, an element which is like if you go to a comedy club to see comedy, mm. you're not going to see Jessica Foster, you're going to see comedy, yes. right? Generic comedy. Yeah. Whereas if someone's coming to a tour show, they're coming to see you and yeah. they're coming to see your thing. I'm kind of interested in um, that uh, sort of the element of self promotion around comedy where for you to become big you kind of have to want to be a personality and be famous and yeah. all that sort of stuff and you're talking in your show about um like the dilemma of wanting people to take photos of you or not take photos yeah. of you well knowing so, that it's a sign that you're doing yeah, better than ever before that people, right. people stop you in the street i mean I, this is this is all brand new for me so mm. i'm just getting my head around yeah. it i remember hanging out with a vet, my friend sarah pasco who's extremely successful and um it was a few years ago, some years ago now, when it was at the start of her real kind of stratospheric rise to stardom. And, and we maybe got stopped by like the third person in half an hour to ask for a picture or ask her to sign something. Just kind of walking down the street or in the park mm, or something. Yeah, really? in Fret, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, uh, and she was absolutely lovely to them yeah. and was talking to them. And I was like, I think, you know, I was a bit tired and moody that day. I was like, fucking hell, how are you coping with that? And she went, oh, you know, it's what I wanted, isn't it? Mm, it's what we wanted. Right. And I was like, oh, yeah. Mm. And I hadn't ever equated that. I think there's, um, I think the being looked at thing is slight, is slightly more complicated than the just, than the fame thing. 
Um, because I think the being looked at thing is a symptom of social media generation, the young people coming through, self-promotion. Whereas I think it's possible to... I, and that you sort of have to do. Yeah. I think you sort of have to do. I might be wrong. I mean, there's people who are, like, I guess, like, Stuart Lee is never going to stop for a selfie. <laughs> He's just got too much <laughs> integrity. But uh, he doesn't need to either. Mm. And so it's easy for him not to. And then you've got people if like... Dan- safe to say, or Kitson. Dan- Daniel Kitson yeah. has kind of built his career on the fact that it's really difficult to go and see him, so everyone wants to go and see him. Right? Yeah. Like, he's a genius, obviously, but, like, just, you know, he he doesn't do clubs, he doesn't do weekends. There's all these kind of choices that he's yeah. made. He won't even do a fringe or a tour show yeah. on Saturday night. Yeah. And sort of, he, like, you get the sort of feeling that he would never want a picture taken of him. No. So what's the, what's the difference there between that and... Everybody else, what's he? Well, he's made that. What's call he thinking of, differently about it? Well, it's fascinating. So, I think you can want to be extraordinarily good at what you do without yeah. wanting to be famous. Yeah, and you do see people that do that. There's, there's very faint. There's very, very brilliant people in their field, where you, and you don't know anything about their life. Mm. Um, the, you know, they're not in and out of the newspapers. Rowan yeah. Atkinson, you know, he's he's internationally apparently goes. Well, I won't say that actually because it's apparently very private. But he lives in a country where he lives in the one country left where no one knows who he is. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, okay. And it's like, and that might be out of BS. Yeah. I don't know. But uh, it, you can do that and still want to be brilliant at what you do. I think as a stand-up comedian, you you are selling a performative element of yourself Mm. so to some extent there needs to be i think i'm perfectly happy to put a performative element of myself out on social media it's not really me it's the same as in my podcast i think what's lovely about podcasts is the intimacy of them but still i think the people that this with podcasts get lots of people go i feel like i'm your friend Mm. and you don't say it out loud because it's cruel but they're not your friend they yeah. don't really know everything about you they don't know everything that's going I mean I do give away an awful lot about me but they, not quite everything um, and actually the more successful you get the more careful I'm going to have to get about how much I give away certainly in terms of my son's privacy and yeah stuff like for that. sure but yeah. um, here's a funny yeah. thing that I find a lot is um, so so you've got your own podcast Hoovering yeah you've done lots of co-hosting with Guilty Feminist um, I find with Beyond Busy that sometimes if someone's in a room to do a workshop with me because they've listened to me on the podcast, isn't it weird when they just know loads of stuff about you and you've never met them, so you don't know anything about them. And I sometimes feel almost like a little bit sort of violated in that moment because it's a bit like you've sort of stolen a bit of my soul and yet I've nothing to go on. Like it almost feels like a really sort of yeah. like, like an unethical kind of situation. Do you, do you feel the same about it? Do you, do you get that same kind of thing? Um, sometimes. I, my, the main example I've had of that is when people go really sort of really a bit too far. And I need to be careful because there's people that listen to everything, to everything <laughs> I do. And then they will, right. like, you know, will comment on over email and on every single possible platform relentlessly Mm. all day Uh, but no just little things like where someone drops if someone drops my son's name into conversation yeah i don't mind that but if they then drop any other piece of information about me into it it's like i don't i don't want you to have pieced together the jigsaw i am slightly mindful about what i say where and you could easily put it all together i should have been more careful this is my fault yeah there is something slightly creepy about where they're like "Mm, don't 
don't like don't join the darts yeah <laughs> <laughs> but what I was going to say about Kitson is I think what he's done is you could either see it as he's gotten an, and I think he's amazing and he's a pal um I said pal weirdly but it's because I don't think we can catch each other as like proper best mates or anything but you know we get on really well but I think either you look at it as he's got so much integrity and he's above it or you go well it's just an incredibly savvy way of bucking mm, yeah it. I mean yeah. it's, and it's, part of the appeal is that no one's quite sure which of those two things exactly and, you're a cult, and he will never reveal which of the two it is but I have my suspicions <laughs> Um, so, and you talked about Sarah Pascoe there and her sort of, so I think you guys started around the same time and then yeah. she's had this like meteoric rise with all the TV she's done and everything else. So what's that like, uh, like when you're watching somebody else become successful? So it's like the Morrissey song where he goes, I hate, we hate it when our friends become successful. Yeah. And imagine like she's a good mate and that, you know, so you're really happy for her too, but like, no, you have to let that go. Yeah. Early doors. God. I think you'd have a very toxic... Oh, and I know that you have a very toxic career in comedy if you are sad about your friends doing well. Yeah, and that it, sort of feeling of professional jealousy or whatever, you've got to just yeah, let that go. Yeah. If somebody who's brilliant gets work they deserve, that's great. Mm. There's room in it for all of us. Honestly, what I mean, there's someone been who's time, not brilliant, be, though. Yeah, no, that's absolutely that disgusting. Yeah. When somebody who's not very good gets a yeah. job that you haven't got yet that you would like, mm. I have to go and talk to my shrink about that. <laughs> yeah, because it makes me feel gross yeah. for a few days. It, it makes me feel gross with feelings of, you know, there are off. Do you know what? It happened recently where someone started to talk to me about a wave of a show that's recently done a. A, a wave of booking a raft of booking a, a TV comedy show it's been going for a long time and I had I'd seen one press release and one name and I thought oh cool good for her and um, it's a show I've not done uh, but it's also a show I've I don't know I've made my peace with the fact that it's not a meritocracy right. the booking of these okay. things they're not yeah. booking the funniest people they're booking the people who are the buzziest but also the fittest and youngest and mm. most diverse and that's fine I mean, the diverse bit's fine. Yeah. <laughs> and the rest of it is what it is. It's not something I can control. And none of it means I'm not good enough. Mm. Um, and that's all you can... That is, honestly, I think the only way to enjoy your life in my career is to not just say it, but to really believe that. Um, and even when you think, well, look, someone I think's awful has got a, something, you go, well... You know, the world's not fair. Yeah. It's right. no, it, all you can do is, I don't know, I think the joy of being a stand-up as well as an actor is that if acting feels way less in the lap of the gods. Whereas at least with stand-up, you kind of can go, just dust it off, dust it off. what are you doing next? Hmm. You know, you're working on this next, then you're working on this next. And, yeah, you've got to just keep making what you do better and better and better. You can't, that's all you can control. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you can control the version of you that's out there and how hungry you are and how ambitious you are and how ready for things you seem and how much you lean in. But you can't, um, you can't decide what it, specific things go, oh, I want to get booked for that now. You, the grace with which you take rejection is, an, is one of the 10 million things about being a, a comedian that no one teaches you you'll have to become mm. And also then if you've done, if you've had a career as a stand-up for a period of time, the ability to take rejection 
would really make you bulletproof in so many different other fields as well, right? I kind of yeah, maybe. Think, think of people in, in business and hurts. writing and all these yeah. kind of, but I think often we don't do things because mm-hmm. we're worried about the potential of, of that rejection. Whereas if you've if you've learned how to deal with that and you've dealt with it a lot and you're more practiced at it, yeah. presumably that's a thing that is a useful a life skill useful to have skill. in lots of places. Yeah. Hugely useful skill. Um, yeah. Tell me about how you think about happiness and success. So um, there are lots of different, I guess, milestones that you would look at, like yeah. getting on this show, getting a five-star review, all these kind of things. Are there particular ones like that that you really... Um, sort of draw yourself to or measure yourself by or is that no, something that I don't work very well with um, with my career I don't work very well with goal like specific goals mm. um, because I find it's too crushing if you don't get the specific goal and also I didn't for me it's not a helpful uh, gauge of where I want to be at I'd rather go you know what a lovely year people are coming for the first time to things just to see me that's really nice and really try and enjoy it just enjoy it and keep doing what you're doing keep doing better what you're doing I do there's obviously stuff I'd like to get and I try and have kind of relatively practical and focused meetings but every with my agent about how we get that and do we need a plan for this that the other and um you know what if you do this when I do this we'll see if that works um and I'm I've I don't know. It's sometimes I have to force myself to do the sort of things that make me feel sick. Like saying to a friend who's had something commissioned, I'd be bang up for that. Okay. I hate that. But yeah, asking for help in Mm. any context I have issues with and I need to get better at because every now and again it pays off. And also, you know, the thing that they're getting you, you'll do well. So Mm. what is the fear about asking about? Um, It just feels so grotty and grabby. Um, And it's, I think that's my generation that have that problem because I, I get people sending me videos of themselves, brand new comedians sending me audio videos, pictures of themselves saying, will you promote this on your social media? I don't know them. I've never met them. Wow. I don't know if I'll ever meet them. Yeah. And that's what people kind of under 25 are doing. Not all of them, but I think Christ. And there's me going, God, I felt a bit mangy for asking people to vote for me in the British Podcast Awards. I'd feel, I mean? I'd feel icky about that sort of thing too. I, hate I just think, no, toot your horn yeah. a bit, yeah. a little bit. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, it depends on your place in the world, how much privilege you're already swaggering about with, how much tooting <laughs> you need to do. But ultimately, um, yeah, I mean, the, the, I find when I looked, there was, there's a particular show which I... Um, one I've always wanted to be on not in a way where I think about it all the time but every now and again I'll see a new batch of people getting on it and think I'd still really I'd really like to get on that and I got uh, I got to the point where because I was sometimes right for it where I was asked to write for it once and the offer of writing for it I felt sad mm. and um, I was like well this is when to lean in then I've got nothing to lose and yeah. I, I contacted the producer and said I, I'm going to do this last writing on it but then I um, you know, don't be offended. I'd, I'd rather not be asked to write on it anymore. I'm ready to be on it. This and this and this has happened in the last year. Yeah. Um, and they were super cool about it and said, oh, you're one of two people who've ever done this. I think you all agree that you're ready to be on it. Um, thank you so much for your honesty. Da, da, da. And I thought I've got nothing to, I have got nothing to lose because they either stopped booking me and I didn't want to do it anyway or they booked me to be on it, which is what yeah, I want. Yeah. So, um, 
And then they were like, yep, contact me. And they gave me a date and I contacted them and they got back and said, yeah, you're not going to believe this, but I've left the job. Oh, and it no. handed over to someone else and it handed over to someone else <laughs> and they handed over in such a positive way that this producer came back and said, I'm going to put you on the next series. And I was like, oh my God, it's worked. Wow, okay. Um, but then actually what happened is I went back, I went back ready to book him for the next series and they were like, oh, not this series. And I was that oh. one. I thought, oh, well, you've overtly lied. You've proper. I thought mm. that was in the bag. I know nothing's in the bag until you've done it, not even yeah. booked for it. Yeah. You have to have been there, done it, nailed it. But that was one where I thought, oh, and, and that's one where emotionally it's huge I have to give myself a couple of days I'm allowed a couple of days raging and crying mm. about that because it's not fair that's not fair and it's a show I've been ready for for a couple of years yeah. now and yeah. it's like come on um, but it's but it, again like I was saying earlier like you just have to accept it it's not fair it's nothing to do with you if you reply while you're angry and upset it with any kind of honest reaction to that you know if they get any inkling as much as you want them to know that they've broken your heart actually for a week or so yeah because that's not cool um it's just that that's not how i just don't think that's how you get on really you have to wait until you're totally cool as a cucumber and then say this uh, send an utterly charming reply with a list of your last four massive career achievements that you've had in the last few months you know mm, yeah just been signed to be in this tv show and i've just done this and i've just done that and um and these four dates i've just booked in have sold out in 48 hours so i'm ready when you are yeah just send something you nice, just have to yeah. be like a straight white american man <laughs> ultimately but also the other lesson from that story is that um you know you sort of you put yourself out there in that moment you yeah. allowed yourself to be vulnerable and even though it didn't pay off like you were it crushed a hair's me. breadth of, <laughs> but that's of the thing is not right? letting so, it crush you permanently yeah, yeah. i won't i don't care i it's it, do i make a, i make have to make a choice do i choose to stop caring about being on that particular show that would be a very easy route especially as it's something I definitely can't control, obviously, because you can get a promise mm. on it and then not get it. Or do you, you go, well, I'll hammer away forever. I don't know yet. I haven't chosen yeah. between those two things, but yeah, it's a funny one. Um, so as well as stand up, you do acting and writing. Yeah. Um, just wondering how you balance those things and how you, um, do they give you? Do you get kind of different energies from from those those different things? And, yeah. and what's the how, what's the distinction in your mind around it? Um, so a priority, an honest priority list is always um, acting first um, because it comes in last minute. I love it as much, if not more, than stand up at the moment. Really? Um, yeah. yeah. And um, I think maybe I mean screen acting specifically. I don't know. I haven't done a play for years. I'm about to do one. But I haven't done one for so long. I can't remember if I love that. <laughs> I'm sure I will. But I'm sure it'll have some of the same stresses as stand-up that you don't get with screen acting. Um, it's much better paid. It's it's just... It definitely moves your career on. Um, but just in the moment, I love doing it primarily. It's just such a joyful thing to do. Mm. Um, and the feeling of getting... Feeling of getting an audition for something you'd love to get in is lovely. The feeling of getting the part is off the charts. Yeah, And right. it's as fun as doing it. Yeah. Um, 
the high from that. And so I've learned that actually what happens with acting is they quite often stagger how you find out and you'll get told that you're a pencil, which means, you know, you're a TBC, okay. you're on a shortlist. Then if you get told you're a heavy pencil, you know you're down to the last few. And I've found that you should ha- enjoy the high from pencil, otherwise you don't get it then. Because then if you get all these blooming pencils, right. all you get is relief that you got it or exactly the same misery that it didn't. Mm. So you might as well enjoy the high from the pencil. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah, acting first. So I would cancel. I, I Financially, you just have to cancel um, live stuff for TV or mm. acting stuff. Because it just is, it's not just twice as well paid, yeah. it's inordinately yeah. well paid. Uh, comparatively um, voiceover but they're few and far between but they're really well paid for very little work yeah. so I mean that and then live stuff and then writing although a writing job on I, I, things have really changed over the last few years I love writing on things and I get a real buzz from it and I enjoy writing for uh, some I've got specific very successful comedians who I love writing for. Yeah. Um, but I'm not always free for it now. And that's so it slipped right down to the bottom of the list. And I'd have to be really free. And I have to say no to quite a lot of that. Um, uh, and I don't like writing on anything that I would rather just be on now. Hmm. So yeah. I've made a cap yeah. on that as well. Um, yeah. But I mean, acting is the one thing where, and, and a, if a tour date's booked in and it's all like sold out, that's the once I had to cancel because I got a part of a feature film, which has still never come out, which is really annoying. Uh, and some people were furious and that felt horrible. Yeah. I mean, the cancelling of things was horrible, yeah. but that's how you juggle it. Sometimes something comes up and it supersedes the thing that's already in the diary yeah. and that thing has to go. But that's where your agent comes in really and a producer again. But that must feel awful if you've got lots of people have all bought tickets to come and see you yeah. and all that kind of thing. And, yeah. yeah, like, how, how do you deal with that? Just got, that's what you've got to do. <laughs> you know, if they yeah. were in the same situation and got offered a part in yeah, feature film right, with, yeah. like, yeah, yeah. Kira Knightley and an amazing director, you're, yeah. you're definitely going to take that. Yeah. Um, how do you think about productivity? Um, so do you feel like you're a productive person? Yes, I do feel like a, a productive person. I feel like I... Um, I'm just always learning yeah. on that front. I don't feel like I'm a perfectly productive person by a long old way. Um, but I'm someone who's productive to the point of meltdowns and burnouts and panic attacks as opposed to someone who struggles to get motivated. Mm, okay. <laughs> so I have CBT once a fortnight, which specifically I started that to deal with just feeling like being on the edge of a nervous breakdown with workload juggling workload and parenting yeah was just you know not working just wasn't working was constantly on the edge of tears constantly irritable um and it was getting to the point and it still does occasionally get to the point where i'll be offered something i really want to do and it's very exciting or i'll get a text message or an email from a friend or a loved one i haven't heard from for ages with lots of lovely news in it which are both gorgeous things full of joy and I just feel horrible when because it was just another thing to deal with. Right. And 
and then and, and the, all the admin that would come with even just getting half an hour to sit down and reply property to the nice email, yeah, let alone yeah. when the jobs come in to go right well i'll have to cancel that thing i'll probably have to cancel that thing to be safe i'll have to cancel that thing now i need to sort out childcare. then i need to sort out what my kids eating that day before that that and that and then i'll probably need to work out travel to and from that oh i'll probably should i cancel that train that i booked for this that wasn't the you need a day to arrange everything. And actually, mm. what my therapist has made me realise is I hadn't left any space in my days for things to change. Yeah. Even though, also, I think I hadn't let go of the idea that that I'm... I hadn't really acknowledged that I'm someone that's doing this on purpose because she thrives on the thrill of it all and the danger of it all and the irregularity of it all and the lack of routine of it. And, and if you love, you know, do you love that or not? Because if you don't love that, you need a different job. And I think I do love that. But what I needed to do was leave, find spaces to leave, not massive ones, realistic, um, to so that there's gaps for all these changes and there's time to factor all this stuff in. Um, so I try and leave wherever possible a day a week. It just doesn't sound like much, but you wouldn't believe how hard it is to do. <laughs> One day a week where I'm not off but I'm working from home with no meetings in. Right, okay. And that's just been from this year. And I'm... Is that a day a week out of seven or a day a week out out of five? Out of seven. So there's one day, so even on One day a week out of seven, working from home, but with no meetings. Yeah. Um, And one day a week off, but just focused on my kid. Okay. But sometimes that's not achievable either because... Of work, you know, I'll yeah. be away. If yeah, I'm not yeah, yeah. in the same city as him, I can't do that. Or if I'm in out of the same city for four or five days on the bounce so that the day I get with him, I have to get a bit of admin done at least. Mm. You know. Do you think... <laughs> so there's guilt around that. So do you think that you... Would you say you're a workaholic? Like, yeah. Yeah? And, is, and what is the... Uh, what do you think is the motivation to not leave those gaps and fill it up and want to do more and like where, where's um, that motivation coming from oh, I don't know I don't know really it's just a desire to do well but ultimately mm. I know that I, this year is much better than the last two I think ever since I had that realisation when my kid turned one that I needed this action plan I just sort of went a bit mad for it and got quite sort of addicted to yeah you know, if I'm not going to do as many club gigs and I need to be getting all this writing, I need to be saying yes to everything. And then this year I've been like, no, say no to loads of things. And I, it's an, basically it just feels like a really ongoing learning curve. Mm. And I'm still at a point with it where I constantly have to check myself going, that's too many days without that. I looked at May and realised I had um, three nights in. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I cancelled a bunch of stuff. You know, mm. but I have to. I almost have to get to the point where it's that saturated before I can yeah address it. But I do address it at least. Yeah, and um, I genuinely think that has made me more productive. And the other thing I've done is half what's on my to do list, if not more than half. And also, if things are left on a list at the end of the time I had to do them. Let stopping caring. Yeah, doesn't matter. I'll do it tomorrow. So that I think that's always the tension, isn't it? When if you're someone that really wants to do a lot of stuff and achieve yeah. a lot of stuff, but you also know that you need to say no, yeah, really that hard. always becomes like a battle in your head. Like I know I have that at different points as well, right? Yeah. And, and so are you? But but you said you're seeing 
like better productivity by making spaces and saying no to stuff and massively better and productivity fe- and feeling better about that. So. One thing I've also found, um, and I don't know if I've said it anywhere ever before, but I feel really fucked off is the only way to put it. I feel really um, put out when I go to the effort of saying an explanatory and polite no to someone mm. and they don't take it. Right. I feel furious because they do they have any idea how hard it was for me and how much time it took me to do that nicely. Yeah, yeah, I could have yeah, forwarded yeah. this to my agent yeah. for her to ignore. Do and you're talking I mean? about where people are sort of saying, oh, I've never met you before, but can we go for coffee? Is it that sort of stuff? Sometimes. Yeah. And sometimes when it's a loose acquaintance, can you, yeah, can you come and host this event? Right, or, can you, okay, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. or would you do my podcast? Or mm. lots of things, lots of things. And often it's people who are very, very well men and, yeah. and sometimes it will be... Um, yeah, I don't, I'm not talking about when friends call on you as a friend. I'm talking about work stuff. Yeah. But uh, we come do this gig or come do this fundraiser or um, if someone in a work context says no to you, <laughs> now I know to be like, I'm fine. Mm, Absolutely fine. Yeah, yeah. And that is, it's a funny thing, isn't it? Because if it, it feels like say, saying no in a really polite way. Yeah, it's um, worse, isn't it? Well, it it takes, like, it does take some thought, and you, you know, and you've taken the time to craft a, an email with the reasons why or whatever, like, as opposed to you could just ignore it. Yeah. Or you, like you say, you could send it to an agent and get them to send something that's probably less polite and less personal, whatever. Yeah. So it does feel like I've having put so that many in. things that I need to let go of. Yeah. I still reply to everybody who emails me. Do you? Yeah. Every single one? Yeah. Wow. Okay. And that's becoming really unfeasible yeah but and that's not going to scale right so like as you get bigger and more well known that's yeah i'm gonna have to do some work on it yeah (laughs) i'm just not replying but it feels gross especially when people i think say my podcast is about eating and i get lots of people messaging me asking about stuff to do with disordered eating very Mm. very vulnerable people with mental health issues and disordered stuff going on sometimes right in the belly of it you know Mm. I don't want to leave those people yeah, hanging, course. but ultimately, yeah. what I'd I'd also be much better served to go. Well, for an hour on Thursday afternoons, I reply to those emails. Yeah, rather yeah. than just constantly, um, you know, never doing, never just stopping and breathing and looking around you again. That's something this year I've been trying to do, and I'll catch myself getting crap at it again. But like, not feeling like I have to spill, fill every gap, every travel, every sit on a bench, every wait for a bus, every mm, yeah. um, every get to. I've caught myself previously to this year get to my son's nursery seven minutes early and stand and do stuff on my phone rather than pick him up <laughs> seven minutes early. And it's like, oh come on, yeah, it's madness. I totally relate to that yeah. feeling of yeah arriving at the school or the nursery a little bit early. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Um, what was I going to say then? I thought I totally lost my train of thought having gone on the nursery. Oh, okay, yeah. So, um, uh, so you've got a little boy who's three. Yeah. Uh, how quickly after giving birth did you go back and were you tempted to take longer and what, how did that work, that sort of balance of home life, family life and, um, and the work? I was very determined not to take very long off and I went back after five weeks. Five weeks? Yeah. Wow. And... Um, um, and I remember at the time as I was just sort of sweating through these gigs, just enduring them. I thought I was being really kind to myself because I wasn't requiring myself to write anything new, just to go out and do mm. stuff that I already knew. I now look back on that and go, 
uh, on one hand, I go, you're mad. That wasn't necessary. What What were you worried? Would I was worried that my whole world would slip away mm. and that everyone would forget I existed and no one would book me for anything anymore and I'd suddenly become terrible if I had a few months off and I'd have friends who were stand-ups and then took a few months off, took three, four months off after having a baby and then didn't want to go back to it. And in my head, I was like, I didn't want to not want to right. go back to it. I yeah. don't want to do yeah. what I want, yeah. might want. I don't want what I might want to change. I was just fear mm. sent me back way earlier than that. And I, I do remember, even in those early days, I had a very crystal clear thought that if I ever had another kid, it wouldn't be until I could have a good six months off. Right, yeah. Because I loved those early days. I'm a weirdo. I really loved having an absolutely tiny brand new baby. <laughs> um, everybody else is more interested once they've got personalities, but I like them. like a little prawn that needs me 24-7. And I loved it. You know, no regrets. I took him everywhere. Yeah. I knocker-fed him while I was doing a comedy club on Radio 4 Extra under the microphone. I oh, really So and you've gone back to work, like but then he, he's like, still with you. He was with me you know, for a year, yeah. Right, okay. And then it got to a year, and I was doing this gig in Leeds, and I had some... Some... I had a lovely babysitter coming from an agency to this hotel, but the hotel turned out to be a bit of a hole. It was all right, but it was it was pretty rough. You know, it was in Wakefield, I think, yeah. and I had to drive to this gig in Leeds. And I just started... He was fine. I started crying and was like, "This is. I don't feel right about this. I don't feel right about being in this. I don't feel right about being here. I don't feel right about leaving him here. I don't right, feel right about a stranger coming to look after him here. Suddenly, he, at one years old, I was like, mm, mm. I, I, I don't know. It doesn't feel like there's any negative effects of lugging him all around the country with me. But from now, this just doesn't quite feel right. Um, and then in the end, that night, the babysitter was one of the loveliest, most charismatic <laughs> and amazing with him people, sitters I've ever had. Yeah. Uh, and she put me at ease and I went and did the gig. But I did remember that. And so from that point on, I made arrangements for him to stay with his dad or not to take as many of those gigs and mm. or, you know, limit the number of nights I'll be away for stand-up. Nice. Yeah. Um, how do you deal with stress? Um, exercise every day if I can. That's pretty much that's, it. That's a pretty good... Yeah. I mean, that's, that's basically <laughs> it. Um, I keep an eye on my booze and my food. Uh, I keep an eye on my body, I would say, generally. Um, but there, I, I'm really... I'm particularly shit at getting really badly stressed out to breakdown point before a holiday. Mm. I have holidays. That's another way of coping. Um... So even though you're filling up the times when you're at work, you do still make the the bigger macro spaces of I'm going to have a week off here. Yeah. Or I'm going to, I do yeah, yeah. have some time there. Yeah. Um, and once I even have one without my kid uh, for five days, and at that point, I do think I was maybe on the edge of a breakdown before I went. I needed it so mm. desperately, and I came back an inordinately better yeah. parent. Yeah. Um, you know, it wasn't a long holiday or anything, but it was just. So it was like medicine for all of us, actually, for all for different reasons. So we were some dear friends. Um, uh, but in the build up to those breaks, I get really, I think, and I just, I, 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 I'm, I just have to sort of stop and say to myself, you can't get everything done before you go. So yeah. stop it. But actually, yeah. I do find in that scenario, still, I know that I'm not perfect at it yet. I can say it a million times. The world won't fall in if you don't get all this done. Stop trying. 
and I can't physically stop myself from trying. Mm. I watch it. I watch yeah. my friends do it, and I'll say all the right things. Lots of comedians are workaholics, I think, We're, especially the women. I think we all also have um, like patterns that we mm. repeat as well, right? So, like, yeah. regardless of what you do, you know, often we're just not aware of our own biases and our own patterns and, and all those kind of things. So you can kind of see that in you could you could observe that in somebody else doing exactly the same things, but yeah. then you go, oh, I'm different, and then you, go, oh, am I really? Is it <laughs> yeah. different? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, but I mean, exercises. I do like weightlifting and stuff in the gym and I don't and swim in the, if I can swim in the sea ever I will get in the mm. sea well maybe you can do that after you finish I this I didn't bring my tops it does look <laughs> it always looks like what tempting when it feels I had a swim on Easter weekend in um, in an English sea and it was so cold and I it was way was colder faint. than you thought it was going to be yes. yeah, kind of um, I still enjoyed case. it I felt very alive <laughs> um, yeah uh yeah, those are the ways I deal with stress, just sort of trying to be kind to myself, really. But it doesn't always work. It's not always enough. I do need to start doing less. Yeah. Um, but it's a, long, it's a fight with myself. Hmm. Um, you told a story. You did Comedian's Comedian podcast. Yeah. Uh, you told a story about um, your bottle of champagne. Oh, yeah. Which I really loved. Um, yeah. I'd love you to just... Talk about that. Recap. So when my um, my dad used to work for um, Mellet and Shandon Champagne for like 15 years when I was a kid and then he got made redundant in my late teens, early 20s, um, early 20s. And he gave me a bottle of uh, Dom Perignon 1983, which is the year I was born, which obviously is and feels very special. And I was like, well, uh, I need to save that for a really big deal can't just drink that for any old thing um and I uh I initially I thought I will as I started stand up I thought I'll drink it when I get my first agent and then I got my first agent but it didn't quite feel like a big enough deal I thought I'll um drink it when I've done my first Edinburgh Fringe didn't again it went fine went good went really good came out of it with a few bits and bobs going on that weren't before but didn't quite feel like enough. And then uh, I think a decade went by, maybe less, uh, and I hadn't drunk it because every single thing I'd said would be a good enough reason to drink it didn't feel good enough in the moment because I was already too fixated on what was coming next. Um, and then shortly after my son was born, um, I was just having a catch-up with some of my girlfriends who I know like champagne and I brought it around and we tanked it for no reason at all. Nice. It was one of the loveliest <laughs> feelings ever. And it had already gone a bit brown. It was absolutely delicious, <laughs> but it was about time we drank it. Um, yeah, Does and it was, go, and I didn't it, feel sad. Uh, well, I'd stored it properly, but yeah. it depends on the year. Some of them age better than others, but champagne right. doesn't age like wine. You're not, you're not okay. supposed to keep it forever and ever. Oh, right, okay. So, uh, yeah. so there, there is like a bell curve where yeah. it will go the other end. And, and it was it was definitely good, on the way right. down. It wasn't yeah. disgusting. It was still delicious. Yeah. It was still fucking delicious. But I've no regrets, you know, and I and it, and it felt like a bit, a bit of a it wake-up call. To, like you're, you're waiting to be happy. You're waiting to be successful. Mm. Same thing, you know, as people who, who think they'll be happy happy when they're thin or they think they'll be happy when oh I don't know when they've got kids or when yeah. they've you know found love or whatever I think if you're waiting to be happy it's it's really that's not how to be happy and it's, it's also like a kind of two fingers up to to just that idea of of sort of 
always chasing the next carrot, right? Yeah. And I think we have this natural like human psychology of like never wanting to settle and never never wanting to really admit to ourselves that like oh we've we've arrived and this is good enough you yeah. know we're always like what's the next destination and we want to want to carry on i had a similar thing which was um which i've just thought of now i totally didn't yeah. ask you that so that i can like yeah, yeah, I love it. share my thing but it just made me think if i used to have this thing i used to always write like a sort of new year's plan not necessarily like new year's resolutions but like what do i want to get from the year and i just write down a few things and i remember one year i wrote down um i want to have enough money that i feel secure in my job and my business that i can go and do my work and i can wear my brown corduroy trousers right <laughs> oh. and i used to just wear cords all the time right yeah. and i still do a lot in the in the winter month <laughs> but like the the thing was i was always doing like these keynote gigs and, and other other you know uh, sort of gigs within businesses and i'd always have to put the suit on yeah right and it was like my my kind of armor of like mm. i'm one of you i'm i'm going to fit in here and all that and then one day i just sort of had this thing of um Graham, just wear the cords. It's fine. Yeah. And I think there might have been a little part of the briefing which was like, oh, it's kind of, you know, you can be casual and whatever. And so I was maybe coaxed there a little bit. But then I did it once and I wore the corduroy trousers and I did this talk and it went really well. And it kind of felt like it had gone better than the ones I've done before. And then since then, I've just gone, I can just say that that's, you know, and I don't, you know, I never, I never put a label on how much money I needed or whatever. I, it was just, I needed enough money to be able to feel secure enough to be able to yeah. wear the corduroy trousers and be myself. And it was like this huge moment of like, I can actually just be myself now and it's yeah, fine. Yeah. And yeah, that was a big thing. And I, I remember listening to that thing about the champagne and I hadn't even put the two things together. Yeah. And, but that's, yeah, that's it's a really, you're waiting that's to be why happy, it resonated You're waiting me, to be successful. Just be happy. Just be successful now. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when we did your Hoovering podcast, you asked me if being a productivity ninja is a rod for my own back yeah. because it's the whole thing about... Uh, I have to turn up to every meeting on time and I have to reply to email in a timely way and all that kind of thing. Um, So I can kind of flip that around to you with Guilty Feminist and being um, a co-host of that. Mm. Do you feel like you always have to have the feminist viewpoint or can you you also go into stuff with the guilty part of Guilty Feminist too? Yeah, no, I'm not... um... I'm not as woke as that podcast. <laughs> um, I, and I don't, I, I mean, I'm very, very great. I'm so grateful to Deborah for the exposure that the podcast has given me, but I don't think I'm on it as much as people think. I haven't done that much of it. And I, certainly recently, um, she's diversified it in the most amazing way. Yeah. Um, and it has gone particularly down a very social justice path. And um, I am a feminist, but I am as guilty as I am feminist and I'm uh, the more the podcast goes down the kind of uh, it has a, it opens if you've never heard it with a sort of series of one liners where you say I'm a feminist but and then you say something sim- silly silly or serious um, like my favourite type of apples called Pink Lady or something like that <laughs> um, or it can be something you know massively, also like massively of, sexist that you actually did do you know what I mean yeah um, and one of Deborah Francis White's ones was like she went on a demo uh, like the, I think it was like Women's March even. yeah yeah and then it went down Oxford Street and then she, 
it was taking a bit long, so she popped in to buy some makeup. Yeah, <laughs> she popped in to buy some makeup. So it's all that stuff of like, I, and I love that about it that it has that sort yeah. of like it's the beautiful flaws in all these things. Exactly, well. but she's quite open in her book, um, and and you can see it in the podcast with how the themes have changed that it's becoming more less I'm a feminist, but and more I'm a feminist, and mm, and it's very much right. a call to arms, and it's becoming, you know, she really really wants to get people active and caring, and you know, not just leading in but changing the world. She wants. To to lead an army um, and I am not I'm not the same you know I'm deeply ambitious as a comedian and an actor but I'm not a social justice warrior mm. try and set my stall out on that in this show actually it's a really interesting question I don't feel I don't feel in any way restrained by um, the ethos of the podcast because I'm down with 90% of it but the very extreme ends of the wokeness and the complete up-to-dateness I'm not down with and also I I I, it's I'm a clown, and um, and once you once it's it, it once the more serious thing gets the potential for comedy within it, the more uh, gets smaller. I suppose you can limit yourself, and also I don't think personally that comedy for all stand-ups should all the time, me included, be a completely safe space. I think that will suck the comedy out of it. Mm. Um, and I am of the opinion at the moment that it is okay uh, to be upset and to be offended and that we need to keep talking about all of these things and that if somebody doesn't share your opinion, it doesn't make them evil. Even if you think their opinion is evil and their opinion is horrific, I really genuinely think there'll be a reason why they think that and you also have to acknowledge that in the grand scheme of the whole universe there's a chance because of philosophy that they're right and you're wrong still Mm. and if you can really live like with an honestly open mind like that um, you're in a great place as a comedian but not as a social justice warrior because as a social justice warrior you need to be 100% sure that what you think is right and it's definitely the way forward Mm. Um, and so I'm allied with 90% of the causes and I love the show and I love the audience um, but I'm not um, confined entirely in my work at all by um, its sensitivities and its accessibility I hope that's articulate that's really articulate (laughs) I mean um, it just made me think about I often feel like we're sort of lacking in nuance. Mm. You know, I feel like Twitter in particular is such a he said, she said sort of environment and it's very binary in the way that it it sets up arguments all the time. And I wonder whether, you know, you're talking there about discussion and having more, I think offence can be a useful place for opening up the space for discussion about the politics of, of all of these different things. Um, do you, is that something that you you feel in the work that you do, either writing or comedy? That you are you are you conscious of that nuance being a more difficult thing now, and it being oh, harder definitely. to do that? And yeah, what does that mean as a sort of? I suppose what does that mean as an occupational hazard for you? Well, ultimately, you want to be woke, but you do, you also want to still be able to be naughty. <laughs> I mean, you're a clown. I want to be able to knowingly say the wrong thing or say something a bit off yeah, or a bit cheeky yeah. or a bit subversive it's boring to watch comedy that you already agree with all of i think some people do want that um and also there's just boundaries to it i mean i had somebody write i I called myself a cretin on the guilty feminist and i had somebody write a long essay which they made sure got to me on twitter about my ableist slur and i currently think that's ridiculous and i should be able to call myself a cretin Mm. but i 
you know. I don't even know the history. Of, what's the history of that I word? I think what's it's a thing? French word for an actual medical condition in the 1920s. Oh, right, I don't right. know that anyone know. ever has ever viciously called someone a cretin mm. in, a, in a way that right. made that person sad. Yeah. Maybe they have. Even then, it's a different context. and mm. it's. But who knows, you know, was that if that was a word about race, I'd be like, oh, God, I'll never say it again. You know, so mm. sensitivities are different on different things. And I might eat my words. And in two, three years, I might not be saying that word. And I might be very embarrassed that I defended me- myself for saying it on a podcast yeah, now. Right. Because that's the pace at which things are changing. But I mean, you've got to relax about it. You've got to live your bloody life. Mm. <laughs> and you've also got you to know. remain a clown yeah. and, and be entertaining. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Or well, at least be... Um, just be honest about where you're at with things at the moment. Mm. And also, I think all it takes is to be able to go, well, I'm someone who's always changing, you know. Yeah, and so I think yeah. these things now, and I might not think them in a year. That's okay. And do you feel the same about, so things like the Kevin Hart thing that happened? What where was that? he was going to host, was he going to host the Oscars? I can't remember what it was. He was supposed to host something really big, and then he got pulled I think it was the Oscars because it was like yeah. the year before the Oscars was like really white and it got really criticised oh, right. for that rightfully so and then he was due to then host it but they pulled out some tweets from a long time ago um, where I think he was I think he was saying something homophobic right but then he had come out and made the statement where he said look that was a long time ago and I have totally changed yeah I don't think that I was brought up a certain way yeah and his response to it was, I thought, very articulate in, in the way yeah. that he clearly didn't—he didn't reflect those. Sort I of, hate Twitter for that. Sort of older views and stuff, Twitter you know. But you know, the, the, but there's a thing there, isn't there, about um, being really absolutist about stuff? Yeah, is also it's it's sort of putting an expectation on people that everybody has to be perfect all the time. And that's just not... It's not possible. possible also, you have to let people be capable of change. Otherwise, what the end root of what you're saying is anyone who's ever had an unethical opinion, a opinion that counts as unethical now, isn't allowed a career and mm, or a voice. Yeah, like, yeah. what? Boggling. Let people change. People have to be able to change and grow. And mm. also, people need to be given a lot more time than they're being given. And a lot of people are called out for bigotry that's just... Give them time. The first time anyone ever says, you know, when you say, so, so let's take one from like a decade ago when people were casually going, oh, it's so gay. I had someone sit me down and say to me, um, what do you mean when you say that then? And I was like, I suppose it just means that, oh, it's so rubbish. And they were like, so you're creating gayness with shitness. And I was like, oh, shit. But mm. I immediately was like, oh, God, that's not what I meant, though. It's all about context. That's not what I meant. But I knew I could never say it again like yeah. that. But I would call out friends on it, you know, in a hopefully jolly way. And um, and I had one friend in particular, like, no, all my gays say it. And it was like, yeah, it's their word to own. So it's not yours if unless you mm. are, uh, you know, it's it's... You know, I, I don't know how you can acknowledge this and still use it like that. And they're like, well, yeah. I want it because I want it. And everyone's first instinct with everything is defensive because it fu- you're making yourself very vulnerable if you go, yes, actually, I've been saying something terrible. Yeah. And I just didn't think yeah. about it. That's embarrassing. There's shame. So, of course, you feel defence. Then at the moment, we've got so much change happening in terms of how we want people to look at the non-binary n- nature of gender how we want bisexuality to be more visible how how much more blurry the things we've been allowed the comfort of thinking were black and white for Mm. centuries 
not that things have changed, but how we need people ethically to move to this place. But you've got to give people time and you've got to give people stories and jokes and not uh, polemics and rage and um, being sacked from their jobs and being pulled off social media and being mobbed. That's not how you change the way people think. That's how you get backs up. That's how you get people's heckles up. And also, if you treat people like that, then we'll also keep moving towards this Trumpian world where people hide the reality of their backstory and pretend that they were perfect since birth. And I think you'll also have people who would be open to change and would be open to being challenged and thinking differently. Yeah getting so defensive that they react against the whole thing yeah, as yeah, well, yeah. right? So I'm, sure. you, I mean, you see that all the time at the moment, don't you? Of like, political correctness has gone mad oh, and all these kind of things. And actually, political correctness in its base form is just you know, a desperation for kindness and just, compassion. Yeah, That's all it kind is. Kind language, yeah. No one's like, oh, this is kindness gone mad. <laughs> That's compassion gone mad. And, and saying everything I've said, I do also think there are limits to that. If someone pops out some tweets that were bigoted, if someone... Um, I don't know. It's the opinions people have when they're teenagers are pretty gross. The humour people have often as a teenager, me included, was pretty sick. Mm. You know, you snigger at things that were pretty, you know, that people would be quite kind of like, oh, really? Now? <laughs> and so you've got to take into account people's age. You've got to take, take into account the severity of what they said. And then you've got, like, the Liam Neeson situation where you're like, oh, I mean, that is a very extreme thing mm. that you're very casually yeah. admitting to having done. And I think that's quite different. Yeah. If someone's admitting to murderous racist thoughts, that's like, oh, and just admitting to it on a whim as in mm. part of a kind of standard press thing about a film, you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's yeah. and again, like I don't think kill the man, end his career. But now we all know that's a really that's something that that's big. That is a big deal. Yeah. That one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but there we go. I don't know. Twitter. Hey. <laughs> um, do you have any thoughts on how some of that stuff uh, is? being approached or should be approached in a kind of business context and like obviously just kind of thinking about lots of organizations where either the brand is under threat or or kind of those things happen and also of course where teams might have those kind of issues yeah um oh i think if teams have those kind of issues then you have i i don't know i'm not i haven't worked in a proper job for so long (laughs) um i'm only in in comedy which is sort of horribly uncontrolled um but i feel like comedy you know, is comedy is one of the front lines of a lot of these things though isn't it, it yeah feels like i suppose so really but then also to... because it's so unwieldy there's been mm. a massive amount of sexism and some really terrible me too stuff in comedy that just goes under the radar because people don't mention it because they want to get on oh, really? in their career yeah. yeah and because it's there's no one to go to there's no boss to go to mm. and say this sleazy old prick that runs this club has squeezed my ass and oh the stuff people have you know gross old men that run huge comedy clubs really london even like that say horrific and do horrific things and they're like well oh god i don't know so it's quite unwieldy in that way whereas if you could go to hr and you can go to a good my line manager then obviously in those environments you should be afforded the protection of um all your human rights, mm. <laughs> so all your freedoms yeah. and all your responsibilities in turn. And your responsibilities are as important as your rights when yeah. it comes to equality and diversity. Um, and I think, again, like a part of it does come down to 
even in a business environment, sucking some of the shame out of some of the not perfect thoughts. The minute you say, well, you're ultimately a bad person then and you're irredeemable if you've ever had mm. these thoughts, that's not the way to train yeah. people. I'm sure yeah. that's not how equality and diversity, yeah. good equality and diversity training works. I wish a bit more um, care and time was spent on that. Um, I'm aware from the few friends with proper jobs and friends and family with proper jobs that sometimes it can be, you know, just a PowerPoint slideshow without there even a human and a there. Bit I don't think that's ever going to, yeah, yeah, that's going to make any impact on anyone ever. You need some people that care about what they're doing who are really good at what they're doing with that kind of training because it's such a sensitive thing. Mm, absolutely. Um, yeah, and I don't know. It, uh, every situation is so unique. But in terms of this like accountability for... There's just something in the papers that this week about Cambridge University is going to be called up on its history, historical links to slavery and um, how some of the um, founders... Uh, will have made lots of money from slavery and stuff like that and they're always um i think ultimately it comes down to like yeah let's talk about it dig it up if that shit's been buried dig it up but not to shame it and not to lose them not to say oh well i don't want to study there then just to get an honest picture of its real history they're always and rightly very proud of all their abolitionists and all the work that their academics and did towards abolition of slavery but let's look at the full picture but that's not to say you're smashing down statues and i wouldn't send my kid there i mean i probably wouldn't anyway but for other reasons <laughs> um, he, he won't be able to afford to go to university by the time he's old enough um but yeah you know it's just a bit of balance i think mm. and compassion yeah and empathy even for the people that you think well they've done the wrong thing and I feel like there's a whole bigger thing, which is um, in in Britain, we don't look at British history generally in yeah. that way, right? So zoom out from slavery and you go, look, look at the whole British empire, oh, of how, how we got rich and successful as a country, right? Yeah. There's a whole, it's like a whole conversation, which would be quite shameful and therefore just never happens, right? Yeah. It just feels like it doesn't come up. Yeah, we can't bear it. We can't yeah. bear to stare our emotions up close in the face, <laughs> smell its breath. <laughs> Um, it's been amazing chatting. Um, yeah, thanks for having me. I uh, feel like before we finish, you should just tell everyone where they can find you and what you're doing and um, all of that stuff. Oh, so thanks. Oh yeah, I'm uh, uh, I'm on all the social media at Jessica Foster Key. I've got this new show Hench that will be at the um, Edinburgh Fringe and then on tour. Definitely will come to Brighton and everywhere um hopefully even maybe new zealand and australia in the new year and then um in in early 2020 and i've got this podcast all about eating called hoovering cool and you can find me on there (laughs) one of the next episodes yeah you can cool um and now you can go and contemplate not having a dip in the sea yes So thanks again to Jessica for being on the show. And um, also just want to do a quick shout out to Zoe Cumberland. So Zoe is someone who on Twitter uh, at replied me and Jessica at the same time and said, hey, I love both your podcasts. You guys should get together and do something together. And um, to be honest, I had I'd done quite a few of these with comedians. So I was kind of holding off on doing another comedian one, but I was just like, yeah. I really want to um, speak to Jessica. So uh, so thanks, Zoe, for sorting that one out. And if you haven't heard the other comedian ones, by the way, so there's a great one with Rachel Paris um, at a really interesting stage of her career. So she's just blown up massively in the last um, 
uh, kind of year or so with the MASH report. But um, I was interviewing her before all that. And um, yeah, just a really interesting conversation with her and a really great one with Josie Long talking about her arts emergency organization and social mobility and lots of that sort of stuff. Um, so yeah, really good ones to go and check out if you uh, haven't heard those episodes or maybe just put some links in the show notes to those as well. Uh, so you can find out loads more at getbeyondbusy.com. Uh, thanks again to Zoe for arranging that. Thanks also to Mark Stedman, my producer on the show and Podient for hosting the podcast. And also to Think Productive, who are our sponsors for the show. So if you are interested in bringing us into your company to help with productivity, to help fix your meetings, to help get your email inboxes to zero, then give us a call. Um, thinkproductive.co.uk in the UK and thinkproductive.com. You'll find us all around the world. So we'll be back in two weeks time. I've got some really interesting guests coming up over the next few weeks. So looking forward to putting some more audio goodness in your ears over the next few weeks. Uh, so be back in two weeks time. Until then, take care. Bye for now. Thank you.